0: Hey guys, welcome to the View from the Front podcast, where you're going to find news that you won't find anywhere else, and where you're going to hear from a guy who wants to unite the country, who wants to show as much love as humanly possible, and who wants to motivate and make you a little bit wiser with each and every episode. My name is Stan R. Mitchell, and I'm a prior marine, and a guy who spent more than 10 years in the news business. And as a guy who's been deployed overseas... And as a guy who worries a lot about our current media situation, as well as the state of our country, I decided it was time to speak out. I can no longer remain silent while our country grows further and further apart. I absolutely love America, and I care a lot about our military. Where they're at, where they might be going, what conflicts might be on the horizon. And I know that as Americans, we are each and every one subjected to loads of news an opinion that upsets us, divides us, and causes us to hate those on the other side. I'm not that way, and it's time to provide the balanced counter to that division. We need a calm and solid media voice who doesn't work to divide, and who doesn't use scare tactics or extreme, minuscule examples to work up their audience. Every day and every night, on a daily almost hourly basis, this country hears too many distortions, exaggerations, and selective examples designed to capture attention and rile up the audience. You know this is true. I say no more. No more of that. It's time for some steady, level-headed facts, and it's time we all do our small part to pull our country together. After all, A house divided cannot stand, and I believe that we can best reunite and reunify this country by showing more love and cooperation. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I know that our democracy doesn't work without informed voters. And I also know we need to grow closer together and show more patience and kindness to each other. If we want to pass on a better future for our kids, then we need to heal our country. And I think we can do this. Guys, we can absolutely do this. Each of us can be more patient, more kind, and more optimistic. We can talk about politics less, and we can remember how awesome our country is. And even that neighbor down the street who you disagree politically about everything with. They're a great person too, and you know they'd help you in a second. Even if you did have to endure a political lecture that you really didn't want to hear. Most Americans are good, and we need to remember this, always. From the poorest ghetto to the richest suburbs, from the low ground in Florida to the towering peaks out west, America is a wonderful country that we were all very fortunate to be born in. Our country is filled with amazing, hardworking people who would give you the shirts off their backs, and if you think about it, every single natural disaster has proven that our people, of every race and income bracket, both the rich and the poor, our people will always rally and help one another in times of need. Don't believe the hyperventilating people you see on TV. Don't believe the predictions that our country's best days are behind us. This is not true. It's simply not true. We have seen darker days. We have overcome far worse. We need to be of good cheer, and we need to stop living in fear and despair. And with that out of the way, let's get started. This is the February 2nd edition of The View from the Front, and we're really glad to have you here. In this episode, we'll be discussing several topics which I hope will interest you and that I hope and think you probably haven't seen in the news. This includes, we'll start off with some good news for America that I really wanted to share with you guys. I'm always looking for positive things. And so I think this might make a few of you smile, and I'm pretty sure you have not seen that for sure. We'll also talk about the news that Ukraine will not get F-16s from America, according to President Biden. And we will uh, talk about how some folks in the Pentagon are skeptical about this and see a path forward. And then I'm going to talk about how that relates to the so-called deep state, and I'm going to hopefully dispel a myth or two about this situation. Then we're going to talk about Israel. Uh, They launched a drone strike against an Iranian facility, and the damage seems to be pretty severe, and I'll explain one big reason for why that's significant, uh, that being this attack, of course. And then finally, Afghanistan's wounds have spilled over into uh, into Pakistan. Apologies, I can't talk. So Afghanistan's wounds have spilled over into Pakistan. We're going to talk about that a bit. And then finally, we will cover plenty of motivation and wisdom as we do every single week. And as I know that for many of you, it is the best part. As a reminder, there will be timestamps in the source notes that you should see in case you want to jump to any of these categories. Um, You can do that by looking at the timestamps. So with that, we will move into... First, we will talk about the good news for America, which I don't think many of you had seen. And I've been meaning to share this for a bit, but a lot of times it's just a matter of trying to squeeze in the news because this was from a Gallup poll two weeks ago uh, from January 13th. But I thought this was some great news. And in the Gallup poll... US political party identification is now the highest number of independents going back at least till 1988. It's now at uh, 41%. And actually, as I'm studying this graph, I overstated. It looks like at one point in about 2014, it was a tad higher. But basically, the level of independence is as high as it's been. In almost 30 plus years. And the number that identify as Republican and Democrat, they are back both down to 28%. And then so 41% most recently said they identify as independents. And for me, I think that's huge. I think both parties have unfortunately worked in their own ways to divide the country. And I think that, you know, both sides, they're in it to win. And both sides are constantly trying to rile up their base and raise dollars and organize. And you do that best by creating some level of concern or fear. And we certainly have plenty to have to be worried about in the country. And so one of the things I've been trying to do with this show is let's tamp down that fear. Let's stop thinking the worst of both sides. Let's stop thinking that, you know we take extreme examples from either side and use it to scare people. Let's stop that. Let's just remember that most Americans are good, and let's start trying to unify. So to me, this was great news, that the number of independents is growing, because that's ultimately what we need. We need rational, mature leadership in Washington, and we don't need people who are the, I guess, stars of their party, who are great with the YouTube hits. They're great with the social media plugs. They're great with going on one of the cable channels and having a perfect two-minute soundbite. That's not really what we need. We need people who can work hard, who can study legislation, who can fix things, who can correctly sell and unify their vision for their country without being so aggressive and nasty toward the other side. I wish I had saved this fact, but while I'm on this, I had seen or I had heard a podcaster say the other day that when Al Gore debated President Bush back in, I believe it was 2000, so it was about 20 years ago, um, they agreed on, during the debate, the two were obviously disagreeing on lots of things, but I believe it was like 18 or 20 things that if you go look at that debate and study it, there were about 18 or 20 things that they basically agreed with. And think about how far we've come since then where you'd be hard-pressed. If you watch the debate between Trump and Hillary, I don't know how many things they agreed to, but it was very, very low number. And so we've we've unfortunately magnified some of our problems. And so I'm hoping I can do my small part to knock that down. I hope you as a listener can do your small part to knock that down. And love those people who are to the far right or to the far left. Got to pull this place together. Now, the other thing I wanted to share before we get into the news is, and I'm kind of stoked to share this. I recently had a great interview with a former FBI agent named John Stamp, who's also an author and has written several books himself. I think he's written seven my numbers are right off the top of my head. Um yes, yeah, seven. I see in my notes now. And we covered so much in that interview. It was an amazing interview. So if you want to hear more time about or more about my time in the Marines, listen to the interview. If you want to hear the background for what kicked off the Nick Woods Sniper series, listen to the interview. If you want to hear what it feels like to be on top, also at the bottom as an author, I'll talk about that. I'll also talk about An absolute book you must read if you want to be an author. I'll talk about my writing process some. Talk a little bit about my mystery detective book series, Danny Yacob. I even talk about this podcast a tad, what I'm trying to achieve. But it's just an incredible interview. I've got a link to it in the source notes if you want to find it through Apple. I was on, uh, I can't speak, I was. Yeah, my grammar's not great, is it? But the podcast is called That's Criminal Podcast with John Stamp. I've got a link to it absolutely awesome awesome interview and he shares a lot as well so it's really engaging I got to listen to it just after it went live and I was a little nervous because you know you always you're a little nervous when you're getting interviewed but I think it came out really well so the link to it's in the source notes if you want to go check that out definitely do so and hit me up with any feedback you want to hit me up with or if you have other questions or anything I always try to answer all emails so you can find my email easily through numerous places all of that out of the way, let's get to the news. The thing we're going to start out with is the Ukraine-Russia news, and as I said when I teased it earlier, President Biden is saying Ukraine's request for F-16s is not going to happen. Now, a lot of supporters had hoped this would happen, and when it first came out, and Biden actually spoke about it in an interview, a lot of pro-Ukraine supporters here in America were very frustrated at President Biden. I had a bit of a different take on it. As you all have heard me say, it's clear that the political winds are beginning to grow stiffer, and so we just did one of, maybe the largest, if not the largest, but one of the largest for sure aid packages to Ukraine, and the reality is whether it bothers me or not, whether it bothers you or not, political opinion matters in America. And as more people are concerned about the money being spent to support Ukraine, you have to be aware of that if you're in Washington. And so I am not as frustrated about the decision as I originally thought I would be. I do wish they would have done it, but I also understand the position And having followed politics for a long time, sometimes pushing too hard, too fast, is the wrong idea. So the interesting thing about that story, and the reason I'm mainly bringing it up, is that the Washington Post has a story that says the decision by President Biden has been greeted with skepticism at the Pentagon Where some officials foresee eventual approval or a scenario where American allies provide the aircraft with administration approval. So, here's what's funny about that story. And I'm going to do one of those things that you tell people never to do and that I normally don't recommend. I have not read the story. (laughs) Isn't that funny? I literally haven't read it. I don't even need to read it because I know history. History repeats itself. And so when I see that, as soon as I saw the headline, I've got the link to it in the source notes if you want to go to it. I know many of you probably don't have a Washington Post subscription, but I don't even need to read this because this story has repeated itself so many times that it's like there's no point in even reading the story. And the irony is the only thing different about this story is that you don't have, like with the former administration under President Trump screaming about the deep state working against his will... Well, the irony is, is like, that's the way it's always been. You go to any administration. When President Obama was president, there were generals working against him, not wanting to carry out his orders as he wanted. Wanting, they were dropping leaks. This goes back before even Obama. It goes back to Bush. It goes back to presidents. It goes all the way back. There's always been. It's not a deep state. It's a bureaucracy. It's it's generals who have relationships across the world with other governments, places they've served, other generals, other militaries. It is generals who serve on various large corporations that make military weapons. These are very influential people. They have access to current serving generals. They have access to current serving senators. They have access to other countries' leaders. And so there has always been A bureaucracy. There has always been a military-industrial complex, at least going back to World War II. And so, it's not about a deep state. Let's trying to undermine a president. It wasn't something personal that was done to President Trump, as he often seemed to imply and say. It's been done to every president. And so, I'm certain that I honestly think President Biden does not want to send F-16s. If I had to guess, it's a little risky. Why take the risk? He's on a roll as far as his support for Ukraine. It's a complicated move, but I'm also 99% sure that many, if not most, in the Pentagon want to send F-16s, and so they're going to find a way using other NATO countries, and that's exactly what I'm sure the article says, where the headline basically says, officials foresee eventual approval or a scenario where American allies provide the aircraft with administration approval. That's probably what's going to happen. I'll just go ahead and call it. In a week or two, you'll see it'll be one of the NATO countries that have F-16s will send them with administration approval. And that's how it's going to happen. And so it's just this is just regular politics. As the well-informed listeners know, this goes all the way back to Dwight Eisenhower. As a reminder for those who don't who recognize the name but can't remember who or what he was. During World War II, he was the Supreme Commander of the Allied Expeditionary Force in Europe. He achieved the five-star rank of General of the Army. And then, of course, later, he was the 34th President of the United States from 1953 to 1961. But I bring this up because this man, who was the most powerful man in the Army, who knew the Army better than any president probably going back to, I don't know, maybe Washington... This man literally in his farewell speech warned about the military industrial complex and how he essentially but if you read between the lines, if you read the speech, I'm gonna quote a small part of it, he talks about how it's going to undermine or I'm sorry, undermine any elected leader. I'll just read a few lines from it. can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defense with our peaceful methods and goals so that security and liberty may prosper together earlier in that very same speech he talks about how there's a large arms industry that they have the total that their influence is so large that it is literally according to eisenhower the economic, political, and it's even spiritual is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. And if you think about it, think about like where congressmen and senators they fight on where to put military bases. Anytime a weapons system is produced, it's produced in multiple states so that there's more power among the elected officials to push a program. Sometimes a program that in years later the Pentagon may not even want and the Congress will continue to create a weapon system that the Pentagon doesn't want because it's jobs in their state. So the military-industrial complex is strong. It's huge. I could devote a huge, you know, one or two or three podcasts to that alone. But I just say all that because I wanted to dispel the myth. I get frustrated when I hear people talk about the deep state because the reality is... It's not a deep state. It's a bureaucracy, and it's powerful people who have their own personal goals. And there are people who have spent their entire military careers preparing to fight the Russians. They see the Russians as the greatest threat to America, and obviously Russia has invaded Ukraine, and these generals, some of whom know Ukrainian commanders, some of them worry about NATO, they are wanting to do what they feel is the right thing, which is to get F-16s there, their boss has told them no. So what is Plan B? Well, Plan B is how can we get web, how can we get F-16s there in another way? You know what's what's the roundabout? And so they'll try to use other NATO countries. This isn't like some huge scandal. This is just the way world the world goes. We can all name civilian situations where you get a new manager at work and he or she wants to have some new policy or new sales go or new this or new that and the people, the staff, don't agree with it, they think it's silly or stupid, what happens? Well, you don't implement it well. Or you throw up, you know, you slow down the implementation, or you don't try as hard. Um, often employees will undermine them, or try to get to the board, or to their manager, or they just clog things up. And so that what that's what happens. That is, I apologize, I can't talk. That is what happens when you try to do something that's not popular, those under you are going to try to make it happen anyway. And that's happened in every administration going back at least to the fifties. And so boom, wanted to get that small point across. I think a lot of people get that, but it's easy to sometimes it's, it's just more fun to think about the deep state and how scary that is. And there's gotta be this huge grand conspiracy, but most of the time there's no huge grand conspiracy. We just, we just like to think there is let's move from Ukraine to Israel and Iran wanted to share I'm kind of torn on this honestly on the one hand this is huge news on the other it's almost impossible to talk about it very much and what i mean is we always i've mentioned numerous times in previous episodes that it's very difficult to get news from Iran out we've talked about with the revolution how hard it is Iranian government forces have just really locked down, getting any news out. But what most certainly happened since the last episode is there was a drone attack on an Iranian military facility, and the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and several other places are saying it's the work of Mossad, which of course is Israel's secret, basically CIA, spy service, intelligence agency, whatever you want to call it. And pretty crazy. You can actually see, and I've got, by the way, I've got a link to Reuters in there. I apologize. I can barely say that word. We've talked about in some earlier episodes, I have a bit of a speech impediment to this day, which I'm not good at saying my R's sometimes, and I don't say my S and T's too well. So I took speech in elementary school, and I, of course, get nervous every time I do a podcast, but I still feel drawn to do this, and so we will persevere. So I have a link to Reuters which I think I said it better that time, that also is open source. You can read that. The New York Times one is blocked. So unless you have a subscription, you can't see that. But it does appear numerous news organizations are saying that uh, Mossad and Israel are behind the drone strike. A couple of interesting things from it. Again, it's hard to know exactly how much damage was done. But what's interesting is that there were small drones used because... You can find on social media some of the remnants of the drones that survived. They appear to be pretty um, unsophisticated, commercially bought. Top, if you if you get into the weeds, especially on Twitter with some of the military analysts, I will say there appears to have been a ton of damage. In the source notes, I have a link to a video that shows a massive fire um, that was originally shared by a reporter and has been shared in other places, but by a very uh, highly respected reporter that shared that. And so I have the, instead of showing from the reporter's link, I can assure you that link came from the reporter and the video. I wanted you to be able to see the video. And so you can see the video of the fire if you want to. But what's interesting about this attack is, so Israel appears to have attacked A Iranian factory that makes drones, mostly missiles, but drones. And the crazy thing about it is that most analysts and most of the articles you read about it, even though you can't get into much how much damage was done, the fire appears huge, but everyone seems to agree it was launched from inside Iran. So what happened is elements of Mossad have literally basically snuck in drones into Iran cuz these drones don't have a lot of you know they can't fly hundreds of miles so they don't have a lot of battery power but they have somehow gotten these drones inside the country of Iran and launched an attack from nearby so kind of interesting and if you really really get into the weeds on some of the stuff I was reading online it's probably one of the first times something like this has happened but as There was some fencing that Iran used that was somewhat successful in helping blunt the attack initially, but uh, someone said with some very dry humor that if this is the start of how foreign governments are going to attack places, might as well plan on seeing Washington, D.C. buildings covered with ugly chain link and steel wire to help protect against these small drones that carry explosives. And so that was not a very positive thought for me to think about, but I just look for the news and share it. (laughs) And the reality is, it's kind of crazy that a country could do this, that drones are powerful enough to cause as much damage, and if Israel can do it, any other country can do it. And so we've seen, essentially, spy attacks escalate into even bioweapon-type attacks, which Russians have done in places like the U.K., but there's now the reality that a foreign government could sneak in, cargo, or buy commercially available drones and have a you know a, an EOD expert, a military explosives expert here, arm the drones and fly them into civilian buildings, especially government buildings. So I'm not sure how much technical know-how we have in Washington, D.C. and other places. I'm sure there's some to help stop these drones, but... Someone said really the only sure way to help stop them is lots of chain link fence. So, not a fun thought to think about in the future. But, next time you're talking to someone at the water cooler, because you listen to the podcast, you can share something that will blow their mind, and the minute you tell them, they're going to say, yeah, you know, you're probably right. I hadn't thought of that. Well, I hadn't either, but uh, once you see it, you can't unsee it. But anyway, if you want to see the fire, it's in the source notes, and this would be a little point in a calendar where I believe this is probably the first time an attack such as this from a foreign government inside a country launched from inside the country has happened but I'm not exactly a total expert on this stuff so if you know of one and want to email me about it I'll mention it in the next show. I'll give you credit if you want or I won't mention your name if you want but I can't recall of one so we often talk about new breakthroughs in warfare such as when the Ukrainians used Um, drones that are, you know, sea drones are basically small mechanized drones or boats that are powered with explosives and they attacked Russian ships that way. That was the first time I was aware of something like that happening. Well, this is the, you know, I'm always intrigued by new forms of warfare, but this is the first time I'm aware of a drone attack from inside another country. And so that's a wrinkle that I think probably a lot of governments are scrambling to figure out how to deal with. Just a quick reminder, if you love what you're listening to, please sign up for email notifications. It's free, unless you choose to subscribe and support what I'm doing. But you can sign up for free at my website, stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. From there, you can subscribe to the show by email, and that'll make sure you never miss any future episodes. Again, that's free. I will also say that people are are always asking me on social media how to best support my dreams, including getting out future books in some series that they love sooner than what I'm currently doing. Believe me, the best way to support me or this show is by signing up for a paid subscription at my Substack page. Again, that's stanrmitchell.substack.com. Or you can sign up to support at Patreon, again that's Patreon, or you can also find me on Venmo at author Stan R. Mitchell, again that's author Stan R. Mitchell, and I have links to both of those in the source notes or on my Substack page, which again is stanrmitchell.substack.com. Either of those options, if you're wanting to pay, are $5 per month, and you can cancel those at any time. The paid subscriptions provide a recurring monthly revenue, and that $5 a month is the fastest way that I'll be able to return to becoming a full-time author again, which means I'll have more time to write fiction, It'll have I'll have more time to cover the news even more in depth, and I'll be able to work even harder to try to unite the country and motivate others. And these are all things that I feel drawn to do, like strongly drawn to do, so... Of course, you can also tell people about the podcast, and there's even the option to give a gift subscription to a friend. You guys can also clearly tell people about my books, which many of you are already doing, and I appreciate each and every one of you doing that. But I do want to be very clear here. You don't have to do any of these things. I truly feel called to do this, and I've already had tremendous support from people who've signed up to chip in a few bucks each month. You guys know who you are. I really do appreciate you. So trust me, you can sign up come and go as you like. If you want to subscribe for a couple of three months, that's great. You can do that. As long as I'm making enough to cover the time I put into doing this show, then I'm not going anywhere. I love highlighting the sacrifices of our military. I love trying to unify the country. I love throwing cold water on these over-the-top exaggerations by extremist politicians and broadcasters. And honestly, I love knowing that I'm helping motivate and reach out to people who just need a little extra encouragement each week. So, Thanks so much for your support, and with all of that out of the way, let's get back to the show. Alright guys, so let's move to the part of the world where we were for 20 years, and I'm referring to, of course, Afghanistan, which we departed under the Biden administration with lots of controversy, and we haven't covered that a whole lot lately, but I wanted to bring it up for two reasons. And the first one is, this should not be surprising or shocking to anyone. Uh, There's a human rights um, advocate that I shared their link that they had shared on social media. And there's no way to really prove if this is right or wrong. But all of us, once you hear this, you're going to say, yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, And so she writes, Taliban ruled Afghanistan is hell on earth. Uh, She writes, a broken economy with no jobs, 97% of the population is starving, and all foreign aid groups have stopped humanitarian work. Women begging outside bakeries for bread. What have the people of Afghanistan done to deserve this? So, of course, she's trying to get attention there, and the frustrating thing, I think, especially for most American veterans, is that The United States tried to do something good in Afghanistan. It's a very poor country. It's hard to get to. It's dealt with multiple civil wars. It was invaded by the Russians in the 80s. I have studied this country almost too much because, one, the first book I ever published involved a sniper team that went there in this fictional world, which still involved lots of research. I was always fascinated with it as a younger man because there was an eight. Plus, year war with the Russians invading and the US through the CIA providing Stinger missiles and other support to help drive out the Russians. So, I've always been pretty fascinated with it, and it only got I only became more fascinated with it once uh, Al Al-Qa- Qaeda began operating from there. And of course, after 9 11, you could not be fascinated with the country and the various village elders and the tribal leaders and the Northern Alliance up to the north. And so there's just the Pashtuns. There's just so much about Afghanistan. You could talk and study and try to learn about it for years. And there's been centuries and centuries of warfare, going back to the British, going all the way back to almost uh, medieval times. So many countries have tried to conquer or pass through it. So there's it's just a country that's rich in history. But it's also a country that has probably had the last, or the worst, 30 or 40 years of history of about any country in the world, you'd have a hard time picking one that's been through more. It's been through a lot. There's no question. And so well, once we left, I think most veterans were frustrated because many did not want to leave. The relationships were built there. A lot of blood and sweat had been spilled in that country trying to keep it somehow progressing in a place where there's high illiteracy, and very little education, and a lot of poverty. Now, I only say all that because once we left, the aid groups that felt some protection, at least, have mostly been forced to leave or work under Taliban rules. And the Taliban has already started tightening things down about women and education. And I mean, I don't think it takes a genius to know that probably no one wants to go work in an aid job, unarmed, in Afghanistan right now. I don't think there's a long line of people raising their arms to do that. And so, as the aid has started to shut down, unfortunately, that was a lot of money that was going into Afghanistan because of the U.S.-led mission there. And so, as that has dried up, it is horrible there. And we knew it would be horrible. And it's been absolutely just as horrible as we all expected it to be. It's very sad for the Afghan people. It's sad for many... Really, it's hundreds of thousands of American veterans who served honorably and as hard and as well as they could there, and it feels like it all was for for nothing. I'll try not to get into all that, but what I wanted to share, so the economy's totally trashed. That's nothing that's even hard to prove, but I did share the link to that post if you want to see it in the substack notes. But the second thing I really wanted to bring up is, sometimes I wish I were wrong, and the long-term listeners know I am um, blessed or cursed to have been right about a number of things already, which I guess is why folks listen to me. Unfortunately, this is one of those situations where I was right, and I was very right, and I absolutely called it, and I absolutely have the notes to prove it, and I wish I hadn't been right. But in the December 25 edition, two months ago, I talked about how the extremist fundamentalists who are in the Taliban, now that the great evil West, i.e. America, is gone, these religious fundamentalists, have to take their anger somewhere. They have to take their jihad somewhere else. And where have they gone? I said two months ago, they're starting to go toward Pakistan. I talked about the tribal areas that Pakistan has allowed. Um, I went into a decent amount of detail about it. And I said two months ago, in fact, you're going to hear what I said two months ago, because I'm going to paste the entire thing into this podcast, and I'll do a little intro. Nothing's changed. I will also leave a link to the original uploaded audio from two months ago if you question whether anything I say could have possibly been so dead on, because it's absolutely dead on, unfortunately. But I said two months ago that because Pakistan allowed and encouraged almost, but they definitely fueled, they allowed these extremists to direct their anger uh, anger Toward Americans and to operate out of sanctuaries in these federally administered tribal areas that Pakistan's military cannot control. They've tried to go in a few times, they get attacked when they do. Those religious fundamentalists end up coming after the Pakistani government. So, for the past 20 years, despite the fact that Pakistan's an ally, despite the fact that we've spent billions sending money to Pakistan to try to get some some support, some control, some ability to move supplies into Afghanistan. Despite all of that, Pakistan played a dual hand. And so they they were happy that for 20 years they didn't have to worry about some of these fundamentalists. But as they have gone away, I talked about two months ago how that furor, furor has started to move toward them. And I said two months ago, You will start to see guerrilla warfare. You will start to see suicide bombings as these extreme extremists start to blow themselves up. So I said that two months ago. You're going to hear that in just a moment. And I said it's going to be difficult for Pakistan to deal with. I'm not sure how they're going to deal with it. I explained how they'll try to shut down roads, improve security. But the reality is is it's very difficult to stop someone who wants to blow themselves up. Well, since writing that, I unfortunately was right, as I said, and just in the last few days, there was a massive bombing at a Pakistan mosque that they're still trying to figure out how many people are dead, but it's over a hundred at current count. And so it was literally the terrorist group that I mentioned in this clip I'm about to show and i have no idea how they're going to possibly clamp down or reduce the coming continued terror that's going to continue to happen but i just wanted to say uh it's it's really sad that this has happened and i wish there was some kind of i don't know i wish there was i wish i wish just wish it hadn't happened and you'll see this is on The link I provide in the Substack notes is from CNN. I said two months ago in the clip you're about to hear that the national media hasn't really covered this. It hasn't been making the news, but the insurgency was already starting then. I go through that. I said it'll start to make the news in the future, and, well, you know, two months later, it's starting to make the news. You, You may have even already heard of this bombing, but more than likely you still haven't because it still hasn't made the news to the level that it probably will. So I'll go ahead and say I think it's going to get worse. And as Pakistan tries to crush this, the extremist fundamentalists are going to fight even harder. So, at any rate, with all of that said, I am right now going into this. You'll see in the Substack notes, if you want to go to today's source notes, I have the link to the 1225 edition. I also mention in the source notes that if you want to check any of this, you can go to the 27 minute, 30 second mark of that edition, which is still online, which is still on Apple Podcasts and all the other places. I don't even know if it's possible to alter it. Once it's published or uploaded, you can either delete them or that's it. But not that, I don't think any of my regular listeners are doubting me, but you will see that if you want to. But I want to re-put, replace that into this edition for a couple of reasons. One, I listened to it all just a bit ago. It's absolutely dead on. It reminded me of some things. I did a lot of research for that issue Two, I think the people who listen to this will enjoy hearing it. Three, the episode was from, as I said, December 15th. It was right before Christmas. Not a ton of people saw saw it or heard it. And so nothing has changed. Everything in it is historical. I dig into the background of this. And so it's just a few minutes of some really deep, compelling stuff that you probably need to know about and that eventually may start making the news. Then again, it may not. Not until it starts to affect Americans. But with all that out of the way... Here is what I said in December. I hope you enjoy and learn from it. I wanted to talk for just a moment about Afghanistan. And I don't want to get too deep into it, partly because i got too many fillings. Partly because every veteran who ever served there has too many fillings, although I didn't serve there, so I want to make sure that's super clear. But a lot of my friends did. I did want to mention, I almost smile at this, and I'm sure most veterans do too, don't want to get into, like I said, about anything about our withdrawal or any of that. But let's just talk history for just a second and something that's currently happening over there. And it's barely making the news because, if we're all very honest, for a moment, Afghanistan is a very poor, illiterate country. And once American troops left, our desire and concern about Afghanistan uh, returned to the same level it was before September 11th, which is, we barely care. So, that that's the reality. As a country, it's a country very far away. It's hard to get into. It doesn't affect us a whole lot unless a terrorist organization such as Al-Qaeda plans some kind of an attack from there, using it as a sanctuary. So, I say all that because the 20 plus years that we were involved in Afghanistan, the Pakistani government, as most people know. I was about to say some insiders, but honestly, it's pretty well known. The Pakistani government played a dual hand, is I guess what I would call it. And none of this is a secret. You can Google any of this. But while we would send billions of dollars in aid to Pakistan, Pakistan has its own problems. And that problem among, at least one of the problems, I'm sure they have more than that, but one big problem they have is they have some fundamentalist, crazy religious folks who think Pakistan needs to be a more fundamentalist country. And, in fact, as you know, most folks know, this isn't some big secret either. You can definitely look this up. There are what are called uh, federally administered tribal areas in the western part of Pakistan that they literally cannot even control the religious fanatics are so strong in these areas that even though the military has gone in there several times, they basically get driven out. So during the 20 years that the United States was involved in Afghanistan, trying to create a decent country that allows women to go to schools, gives women at least some rights, and while we tried to do some good things there, Most of that time, while we were also as a country giving billions of dollars to Pakistan in both money and military aid, the intelligence service in Pakistan, called the ISI, was playing a dual hand, and that's what I was trying to say earlier. They were often supporting the Taliban. And they have deep ties that go back decades, actually all the way back to the 80s, you can start to dig into this little easy, if you, or real easy, if you want to, and it's kind of easy to go way down the rabbit hole. Uh, but they go all the way; it goes literally all the way back to the '80s when the Soviets were fighting in Afghanistan and the Pakistani army was helping the Taliban back then, and so. The ISI, which is the intelligence arm in Pakistan, has supported the Taliban. And in these tribal areas where the, the Taliban would often retreat from U.S. forces to basically to get to a sanctuary and safe area, they were basically allowed and, and welcomed by the Pakistani army. If you go all the way back to George Bush, I'm sure I could find speeches where he complained about the, Pakistan, uh, the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan was too porous, and so forces would come in from this, these federally administered areas that Pakistan can't really control, partly because they're not trying hard enough, because they don't want to upset the religious elders in that area, but these federally administered tribal areas, troops would come in from there, they would attack U.S. troops, and... Afghan government troops as the years passed, and then they would flee back to safety as we would try to hunt them down. And this happened over and over and over, and as you start to research it, you'll see that the ISI, the Pakistani Intelligence Agency, not only would often provide medical aid and sanctuary, they would even arm, and there are even stories you can find from legitimate sources where they often accompanied attacks, raiding parties of Taliban... From these areas into Afghanistan, they were involved in combat against U.S. troops. So, Pakistan has played a dual hand for quite a while. And they would always deny it, and they would... I mean, I understand the pressures that their government's under. And I said I wouldn't go too long on this, and I've already gone five minutes. So that's just setting up the background. But anyway, U.S. withdrew last year. Lots of controversy about that. I also said I wasn't going to talk about that at this moment. So we withdrew... Everyone knows who listened to me. I didn't agree with the withdrawal, but we did. We withdrew. And uh, the interesting thing that has happened since then, the only reason I'm bringing this up, you're not going to really find this in many news organizations, but there was a bit on it in the Washington Post, and I honestly don't know that I've seen it anywhere else. If you start Googling it, you'll find it in places, but it's not really making the news. But since we left, you know, Pakistan has sent federal or government officials to welcome the Taliban government, and to try to work with them, and blah, blah, blah. But the problem with the Taliban is that the Taliban is pretty extreme on its own, but they have even more extremist people in it, because that's the problem with religion when you let extremists take over. Each extremist is more extreme than the one before, it, and they keep going and going, and everyone claims that anyone not extremist as them is not the true follower. But at any rate, Taliban government has folks who are incredibly extreme, and from the beginning, they've not been happy with Pakistan because Pakistan has women that don't wear full coverings Pakistan government is you know has some modern elements to it, and so they have had a terrorism wing that has been fighting Pakistan from the beginning. but since the u s has left, there has started to become some fighting between the Taliban, basically I'll just say the religious fundamentalists there who think the entire world should be so should be living about 2,000 years in the past. They have started allowing attacks from Afghanistan into Pakistan. So it's kind of like the complete reverse situation. And so um, there's actually been artillery fire uh, exchange. There's been lots of condemnations from both sides from the Pakistani Prime Minister. Uh, Sharif has con- you know condemned unprovoked shelling. Uh, like I said, they fired ex- uh, ex- artillery back and forth, been like 15 wounded in one of those. And so Pakistan and the Taliban are basically at war. Now, Afghanistan's a very poor country, and it'll be constant guerrilla attacks, etc. But it's, I, just, I bring all this up because it's almost ironic, and for those who served in Afghanistan who know how much Pakistan played this jewel hand, you almost, almost almost take a little bit of a pleasure in the fact that they allowed these intolerated and encouraged and even helped these kind of religious fanatics who attacked Americans and helped destabilize what was at least an attempted democratic government in Afghanistan. They played with fire. We have left. That government is gone. The Taliban are in charge. And now that fire has nowhere else to burn, so where is it going to burn? Oh, it's going to go back east toward Pakistan. And the literally, these people that they have encouraged and supported are going to turn toward the now nearest, most modern government that they see, and they're going to start killing people. And they already have. There's already been some bombings. There's, in fact, there's a group called the Pakistani Taliban... And I can't pronounce it, but they call themselves the TTP. You can look them up. They've been imprisoned in Afghan jails that were released. And so, essentially, the Taliban government, which believes it has this religious edict that it should bring traditional Islam to the entire world, well, they've set their sights on Pakistan. So, Pakistan, you have brought on what you're about to get. And so, I suppose I shouldn't add anything else. But... um. There are no doubt lots of people who've been very frustrated in America and advisors and soldiers and marines who knows what Pakistan has done and allowed these sanctuaries. And it was one of the biggest headaches we had the entire war for 20 years. And now Pakistan gets to deal with this headache that they helped encourage. So there you go. You'll start to see some of this, I think, as these um, terrorist-type bombings happen. Like I said, the Taliban doesn't have some kind of crazy, powerful military. But what they do have, they have fanatics, and we saw, or we have seen, obviously lots of suicide bombers. And so they they raise these these very fanatical young men, who remember every single word of the Quran. That's all their education. You you can watch videos on YouTube and they'll kind of be like rocking back and forth as they recite the Quran that that's literally all they know all they all they read all they study and they it's very difficult to stop a suicide bomber and so these young men who are easily impressionable youth some of them volunteer to become suicide bombers and then so instead of them coming at US troops in Afghanistan these young men are going to be going into Pakistani cities and they're going to be blowing themselves up against Pakistani soldiers and government officials and government buildings. And honestly, I'm not really sure how Pakistan deals with this because they've tried to go into the tribal areas before. It's not an easy thing. They will. Uh, I was reading some analysis. They'll probably tighten up their security around the tribal areas. They'll try to stop the roads in. I mean, they'll 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 tighten things up. But the reality is, is they will probably be looking at. A multi-decade guerrilla war against fanatics that can't be defeated. That really, you really can't even hunt them down. There's just so many. And of course, in these tribal areas, there's also folks who from the Middle East who go there to study because these are considered um, very holy religious um, mosque. So they're gonna have outsiders coming in. And eventually, as they fight back harder against these religious leaders in these tribal areas. They will call for, you know, jihad from other Muslims to go there to fight. So, not real sure how Pakistan deals with this in the coming days. But I did want to mention it. You can research this a bit more on your own. I don't think it will make a whole lot of news in the short term. But it's going to be a festering wound for Pakistan for many, many years. But they have encouraged this and fed it. And so they're going to have to deal with it now. Okay, guys, so we will move to the motivation and wisdom part. I wanted to say just real quick, just a short little intro, which I'll probably repeat every week because sometimes it helps to get things to sink in by hearing them repeated. And I know some people think that motivational quotes are crap, they don't work, and I frankly completely disagree, and one of the things I've always wanted to be was an encourager. And so I want to encourage you as much as I can, obviously, But for those who say that motivational quotes don't work, you know, I went to a rough school and going to that school, not everyone graduated, not everyone made it out. And certainly not all of them, everyone made it through college or or to where they probably wanted to get in life because it's hard to be around people that don't believe that suck the energy out of you or that are just beaten down by life or poverty or just difficult circumstances, um, whether it's a single parent, etc. But for me, at least, having books that I read, having dreams, having heroes that I looked up to, whether it was sports figures or past presidents or past military leaders, all of those things helped me. And I know that you guys know this, that if you go to a sales conference or something for like a couple of days, or just some type of leadership event, or just some type of really on-fire type event, and you're around positive people, you are just like, show me the wall, I'll run through it. You're just fired up. But then if you go home, and there's some family members or friends who don't believe in you, and they're like, oh, that won't work, or you can't do that, it just immediately sucks the life out of you. So I know that you know people say motivation doesn't last, but I think that motivation is something that absolutely can help you get to where you want to go. And, you know, I believe all of us can reach our dreams. And I definitely want to do my part to help you get there. So that's why I put these in every week. It's my hope that they really help you. You know, people say motivation doesn't last. Well, neither does bathing, and that's why we recommend it daily. And that's what the great Zig Ziglar said. So that's why I try to put these in every week. So I really hope you get something uh, from them. And with that, let's just get started. So I thought that I would start today's motivation and wisdom section by telling everyone you are amazing and you are doing a good job. And I say that because if you are listening to this and you're older than, say, three years old, which is probably pretty much every person out there, I don't think you realize what you've been through. And so let me explain. I mentioned last week that I'm kind of on a faith journey, and I'm not going to discuss anything faith-wise, any of that stuff. I said a lot last week, and I don't intend for this to become anything like that. But what's funny is, is I'm listening to some old po- podcasts that are of a, uh, just some past um, podcasts from a, a pastor that, that it's actually the church I'm going to, but I'm just really enjoying them, and I'm working my way through them. And they go back about three years. <laughs> and it is so weird listening to, they're amazing by the way, which is why I'm listening to them, but the time jump is crazy. And so what I wanted to share with you, because you probably haven't thought about this, because it all runs together, all the pain, all the misery, everything, all the isolation. But the episode I was listening to, past couple, goes back to when the pandemic first started. And initially they were like uh, the pastor and the podcast host have been isolated for almost 2 weeks and there was the discussion of you know going to the grocery store and seeing empty shelves and the fear and the unknown was just dripping throughout and we can all remember that because we all lived that and just hearing it again you're like wow but here's the crazy crazy part the pastor says he was talking to someone, and so by this next episode, I think they've been oscillating maybe a month or so, maybe two months. It kind of runs together. but they <laughs> it's been a while, and there's all this uncertainty about schools and just and just this edge just an edge to everything and a panic and an anxiety. And the pastor said, "You know, the uncertainty is just so difficult." And I was talking to someone the other day and I say to them, You know, based on some of the stuff I'm reading and hearing, we might be locked down for another month. And he says, you should have seen their face. The absolute look of defeat, fear, Just it was just like punching them right in the gut or something. And even a look of, can I make it another month with this kind of, you know, not being able to go to restaurants, not blah, blah, blah. And as I'm listening to this, And it's such a deja vu listening to it. It hit me that, you know, we all went through that. And we all thought, oh, it's, you know, it'll end soon, this or that, or the wave will end, or, you know, they're coming up with vaccines. There were so many stages to this. But the real reality of it all was, it was so much worse than all of us thought. Like, so much worse and he's talking about, uh, he's into fitness and how he used to never stock ice cream. And he talked about he'd bought some ice cream and was eating it because of anxiety. And I was thinking about how, you know, pretty much everyone gained a little weight and it was tough being isolated and not seeing people. And the employment situation for some were work from home for a long time. There were people that lost jobs. There were small businesses that were closed. There was unbelievable division. Very quickly about how, whether to wear a mask. You all remember all of this. And so, as I was listening to it all, I realized I just wanted to say to the listeners like, we all. <laughs> We've been through a lot the last three years. And when you think about how the division just magnified, especially over masks, over vaccines, and it went right into the 2000 election, which was divisive depending on which side you're on. It was ugly either way. It didn't matter. It's like, man, we've been through a lot. And so just pat yourself on the back because we survived, what, two to three years of un believable just trauma. We, su- we survived a lot. I think back to arguments between friends. I think back to just so much. Just the uncertainty. The fear of losing friends and family. I think everyone at least lost a few people that they know. Just, man, the uncertainty of it all. We survived that. I mean, so if you're listening to this, none of us are where we want to be on our journey, probably. you know, Assuming you're a go-getter, which if you're listening to the podcast and you're listening to the motivation and wisdom section, I think you're kind of automatically in the club of someone who's a go-getter trying to reach some goals or trying to do some things with your life or with your family or whatever it is in your situation. And I think we're so hard on ourselves all the time. And it's just easy to forget. We have been through a lot. And then we come right out of that pandemic and the election mess. Well, again, not going to get political left or right, but we come out of this divisive election, this mess. And then we go straight into, again, economic uncertainty. We got inflation. Prices were going up. Supply chain issues. You couldn't get what you wanted. And then, on top of all that, we were nervous, and maybe still are, but maybe less so now, but, you know, you know, interest rates are rising, and then so that starts to hit the housing market, and so, I just, I just say all of that to say, man, give yourself a pat on the back, because it would be very easy to want to tap out or crawl up in a ball and just give up the last few years, because it has not been easy. So... Give yourself a pat on the back. We've all been mad at the government. We've all been frustrated with the situations. We've all lost friendships. We've seen some pretty ugly social media fights. We've seen you know, both sides manipulate the situation to get voters on their side. So we've been through a lot. But give yourself some credit because we're through it. And now, as part of the healing process have to let that stuff go. I've been trying to reach out to some folks that I had some political disagreements with and trying to reheal and repair some issues. And so these are good people. The people that you disagree with, when you just listen to stuff from back then and you think back on it, people were worried about their health. People were worried about literally whether they could leave their house, whether their business could be open, etc. And we all, whether you were more on the, you know, sphere of COVID and let's, we don't want this to spread and lots more people to die, or whether you're the, you know, all of us being isolated, this is not good for mental health, this is destroying the economy, this is how can the government do this? No matter which side or what range you fell in through that, you had a lot of reason to be upset. You had a lot of reason to make demands. It was very easy to snap off and say some things on social media or, or in person to friends. And so, give yourself some credit. And let's also, as kind of a homework assignment, start trying to repair some bridges. Because ultimately, one of the reasons I do this podcast is to try to heal the country. And I think we just need to remember that we've been through a lot. We've been through probably... The darkest times, at least in the short term for most of our lives, the last 40 or 50 years, probably going back to at least Vietnam um, with the demonstrations back then, some of the civil rights tensions and issues that happened back then. That was a very dangerous and violent time. It's very combustible. And so we've been about as close to that as you can get. I think everyone would agree that's the case. So I'm just saying let's let's start healing. So, thanks for letting me share that. And with that out of the way, we'll just begin, as I say every week, I'm just going to read these, you can find them in the source notes if you want to go and follow these folks, and they will help feed you through the week with greater frequency than what you would get from me doing it once a week. Here's the first one. Nobody cares, work harder. Is that a great one or not? Nobody cares. Work harder. This is something that always hits, especially, I think, creators. But this one's one of those that hits home before it hits, you know, before I share it with you guys. But throughout my 10-plus year author career, especially, but going back to the 9-plus year career I had as a newspaper publisher trying to grow a small business, you would make these, you know, gains or improvements and you'd be so proud of it and you would share it with someone or hear from a customer who or as an author or reader and instead of being impressed that you had made that improvement or whatever they'd say yeah but you know this or it needs to be better story or can you do deliveries further out or with my newspaper like there was always something and it was sometimes easy to beat yourself up but if you're in your day job, we all have things that keep us from doing well, but there's no point complaining to the manager because honestly, <laughs> within reason anyway, the manager doesn't care. The customers who are yelling or upset at you, they don't care either. So nobody cares. Work harder. And when you work harder, you're going you're gonna to get a lot further. And those things that are hard to sell sometimes, if you work harder and don't give up, it's going to start selling itself eventually. So let's go to the next one. The harder the journey, the better the destination. Is that amazing or what? It's true whether you're like climbing a mountain to see some amazing sight or driving eight, nine hours to the beach. The harder the journey, the better the destination. And also, as you all probably know, the fewer people who actually go there. I always think about that as an author as well. It is challenging being an author. Next one. Do what is hard now. And tomorrow will be easy. Do what is easy and tomorrow will be hard. Man, that's a great one. You guys know I'm always a sucker for those that kind of repeat themselves in a different order. But that one, that one, that one lands, doesn't it? Do what is hard now and tomorrow will be easy. Do what is easy and tomorrow will be hard. Man, that applies to everything from exercise to whatever dream you're trying to do. Next one. The harder you grind, the luckier you become. It's a great one. The harder you grind, the luckier you become. Reminds me of one. I think, isn't there a saying something like, luck is a dividend of sweat. The more I sweat, the luckier I get. I remember I used to have it written down somewhere. All right, let's go to the next one. Yes, by the way, for those who just asked, I am a sucker for quotes, and I've been that way for a very, very long time. So here's the next one. One thing's for sure, if you don't play, you don't win. Is that good or not? One thing's for sure, if you don't play, you don't win. Next one. All doubt, whether from myself or others, is the enemy of my dreams and goals. I have zero tolerance for that. That was a quote by someone whose name I don't recognize, but uh, again, all doubt, whether from myself or others, is the enemy of my dreams and goals, I have zero tolerance for doubt. I like that, though. Don't even let it start to root in your mind or in your heart. Next one. Stay away from people that ruin your peace. Stay away from people that ruin your peace. Next one. What comes easy won't last. What lasts won't come easy. It's pretty similar to one from earlier, but it is so true. What comes easy won't last. What lasts won't come easy. Reminder, for anyone who needs to hear this, it's an image, the person you are becoming is way more important than the person you were. It's a great one. The person you are becoming is way more important than the person that you were. Next one, strength grows In the moments when you think you can't go on, but you keep going anyway. That is such a good one. It literally perfectly aligns with what I was reading. I like to read Navy SEAL books, mental toughness books, etc. But it talked about how in the Navy SEALs, they constantly... You're so close to giving up and they push you a little more. And every day you get pushed a little more, a little further, a little harder. And that's how you eventually, of course, become a Navy SEAL. But is your mind will tell you or your body that is just you're like i can't go on and then someone's screaming at you and you go a little further you run another quarter mile or whatever that distance is or another five miles and you're like wow i really could even when i thought i couldn't and so that's what builds that strength up so strength grows in the moments when you think you can't go on but you keep going and i'll guarantee you everyone listening to this if you think back on your past whether it was a you know a job loss, a family member that passed, something. There have been times where you're like, I literally don't know how I'm gonna make it. And you know what? You made it. If you listen to this anyway. Next one. It's not over when you lose. It's over when you quit. So, so true. Next one. Luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Oh, this is so good. Luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. applies to so many things, does it not? I always like to end with this one. Be the reason someone smiles. Be the reason someone feels loved and believes in the goodness of people. I always think that's a great one to end with. And with that, thanks for joining us this week on The View from the Front. For those who want to know a little bit more about me, here's the short version. I'm from Knoxville, Tennessee, and I left home to join the Marine Corps at the age of 17. I was also crazy enough to demand that the Marine Corps put me down for guaranteed infantry. I served four years in the infantry, saw enough danger to decide I no longer had anything else to prove, and I exited military service in 1999. I earned a degree from the University of Tennessee in journalism and spent 10 plus years in the news business. I worked initially as a reporter, but then went on to start a weekly newspaper. What can I say? Anyone crazy enough to start a weekly newspaper at the age of 27 is probably a dreamer and an optimist, and I confess that I'm both. I owned that weekly newspaper for nine years, from 2004 to 2013, but once it was clear that owning a newspaper wasn't the best path to financial security, I went on to become an author. To date, I've written 11 books, and while I still have my sights set on the tallest peaks in the writing world, I'm now here as well, a -a once-a-week podcaster who's still in love with both this country and the news. And I see this podcast as a small way to continue serving our country, doing my best to inform and unite us in a time that we're as divided as we've probably been in a hundred years. Well, I've talked enough about me. I really hope you'll consider at least signing up to be a free subscriber. And if you can, consider at some point becoming a paid subscriber. Again, you can do both of these things at my substack, .substack stanrmitchell.substack.com. Again, that's Mitchell. As a reminder, please be kind and try your best to love your fellow Americans. Let's all work together to unite this country. And also, please try to be a better person each and every day. Try to be kinder on social media and how you interact with others with whom you disagree. And if you've got a dream kicking around in the back of your mind, go after it. If you have that friend or family member that you know you should reach out to, who you haven't talked to in a few months, reach out to them. And finally, if you're one of those awesome military folks listening out there, if you need help, please reach out to someone. Call a friend or a family member. Do it for us all. We've lost too many of the greatest folks that this country has produced to suicide, so I'm asking you to be brave once more and show some vulnerability. Take a deep breath. Breathe. Call a friend or family member, one of your fellow veterans, someone who can help. There's obviously hotline numbers as well that you can call. With that, I appreciate each and every one of you, every tweet, every share, every email that I get. I can't tell you how much those mean to me. Also, if you haven't already put a rating on some of the social media places that you listen to us, whether it's Apple Podcasts or some of the others, if you could drop a rating, that'd be great. We're trying to get those up because I've heard if you get them up to 30 or 40, then the algorithms take over. So that'd be a great way to help out. And then finally, let me mention my books because honestly, the airspace is free and Also, if you're the kind of person who listens to this podcast, they are probably books that would interest you, so I will briefly describe them. The first series is about a CIA series involving a Marine Scout sniper named Nick Woods. There's four books in that series. i got a fifth one releasing soon. I'm almost done with that, actually. Uh, It's my best-selling series, and not only is it fast-paced and crammed with action, but Folks say that the uh, main character, Nick Woods, is one of the most real characters they've ever read. He's not some Jason Bourne-like Superman. He's just a hard, tough man who was raised in the old ways. The first book in that series is called Sold Out, and that's obviously because the main character, Nick Woods, gets sold out. I've also got a detective series about a prior Force Recon Marine who becomes a detective. He moves from a big city, which was Memphis, to a small town, and he learns there's a lot more going on there than you'd think. It's got some organized crime in it, loads of action, a couple of cops die before the end of book one, and if you love that as much as I think you will, there's also a book two. Book one is called Takedown. Book two is called Gravel Road, and it may have one of the longest, most grueling hand-to-hand fight scenes you've ever read. I get so much feedback from readers who just say that they are on pins and needles at the end of book two on what is happening and what the prior force recon Marine goes through. His name is Danny Acuff, by the way. And then I've also got book one of a private investigator series done. It's about an army ranger who's a girl's only hope after she gets abducted and the cops have stopped looking. There's plenty of action in it as well. And it doesn't hurt that the aunt of the girl is hot and she takes part in the chase. So uh, that book is called Hell in the Mountains. And then I've got a couple of realistic war novels. One's about World War II. It's called Soldier On. And I write about the end of World War II, an imaginary Situation where the last elements of part of the German army's just trying to survive. They know the war is lost, but they're trapped from, on one side, you know, the advancing American troops, and on the other, uh, Nazi SS units. So it, really, the book is, it's pretty deep. So it, it digs into the realities of military leadership, and as these warriors are pushed and pulled through just unbelievable physical torment and mental anguish, and will they survive with their honor and dignity, and... You know, and I've been told this, that soldier on just truly defines what it means to be a soldier, to never give up. And then I've also got a realistic war novel about Afghanistan. It's called Hill 406. It's about a couple of Marines who couldn't be more different. They get thrown into an unbelievable combat situation. It's a situation in which they decide to disobey orders and risk everything in order to save some Marines. Had lots of great feedback about how gritty and realistic that one is from veterans who've served there, which is about the highest honor I could possibly get. And then finally, I've got one other book I wanted to mention. Actually, it's a part biography, part self-help, all-inspiration type book about Barack Obama, but includes absolutely no politics, no left-right issues. It's literally just a non-political look at Obama's rise. And I try to answer questions that many wonder about American presidents, what sets them apart, what qualities allowed them to reach their goals, where others failed... How can you cultivate those qualities in yourself? And I think it's a great book that'll help inform you and motivate you, kind of go into how he found his call and how he mastered speaking, how he overcome just so many obstacles, including that huge, like, two-to-one election defeat. And it's the first in what I think will be a number of presidential books, assuming they sell well enough. It's the first one will be on him, and the next one will be on a Republican. I've kind of started that one, but I've put it on hold until I try to see what the interest level is on some type of series of books such as this. Some folks don't like the political angles, but again, if you can get past the cover and the name, it's not a political angle. It's inspiration. It's self-help. So I think you can learn a lot from presidents. I could go for, own, for again, I won't get into it too much, but that book is called Number 44, The Traits and Characteristics That Carried Barack Obama to the Top, the how he managed to the ability to beat out the Hillary Clinton Bill Clinton machine and make it to where he was is still just astonishing. I know he isn't liked by everybody but it's an incredible book in my humble opinion. So that's called number 44. You can check that out as well. And I don't think I said this earlier but you can find all of my books on Amazon. So just go to Amazon and just search for the name Stan R Mitchell and you should see a whole list of them. You'll see them all listed and That's the best place to get them, and that's also why I have to put the R in my name. You'll see there's more than one Stan Mitchell, so way back in the day, I had to do what I never wanted to do, which is put a middle initial in my name, which to me just seems kind of, I don't know, pretentious. But yes, go to Amazon.com, search Stan R. Mitchell, and you will see a list of them. Hey guys, thanks so much. I figure by this point, not a lot of people listen anyway, but for those who are, I will catch you guys next Thursday. Thanks so much, and with that, I am out.